0: Gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm the Gnarly Gnome. This is Sensi Brewcast, the voice of SensiCraft, although we're in Dayton. Uh, the last time I did a show from Dayton, it was an elaborate April Fool's joke. I went over to Branch and Bone, and I sat down, and I told everybody that we were changing to the Dayton Brewcast, uh, and then just recorded a regular episode from Branch and Bone, just because I wanted to do it. <laughs> and uh, uh, this is not an April Fool's joke, uh, and we're not really uh, talking about a Dayton brewery, Um, Although we are at a Dayton Brewery, we're uh, at Muller Brew Barn because I think that they are the only place in downtown Dayton that opens early enough on a Tuesday afternoon for us to sit down and record. We're we're actually here just to sit down and talk to David Nielsen, who I've wanted to get you uh, on the show for a very long time. Uh, I've been a fan of of your writing and and your work in general uh, for, for a very long time. so. Glad that, glad that you finally made the time or were able to sit down and, uh, and, and make this happen. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We've got some fun stuff that you uh, you have uh, in the works that I definitely want to talk about. Um, and we, we might dive into Dayton Beer a little bit. We'll see how, how things go. But uh, beautiful, uh, nice... Dayton Day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a good introduction to the city this time of year, I think. It's dreary and rainy. Uh,
0: This this space here uh, is such a cool space right across the street from the ballpark, and uh, yet it's just dreary and and not even like a, a... pretty day it doesn't doesn't do it justice but
1: yeah they um, got a pretty prime location here this this is a nice piece of real estate to you can to get a s- you patio can sit on. on
0: the patio upstairs and just watch the baseball game yeah. like i don't i don't know of another uh, especially in this part of the country another brewery that has anything like that even no. in other parts of the country like it's it's always some kind of big beer brewery that might have that space like it's 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 awesome. It's uh, it's really cool. There's a lot of fun stuff happening in downtown Dayton. Um, We might have to talk about it actually. (laughs) I'm always
1: willing to give a sales pitch. Uh,
0: Let's, uh, let's start with you though. Kind of give people a rundown. Uh, Who are you and uh, um, what is your relationship with, with craft beer?
1: Yeah. So I'm a full time beer writer and educator Uh, Was doing a lot more events before COVID, so now I'm doing more writing than events, but uh, lead tastings and pairings and educational classes and things like that. Write for regional, national, international beer publications. Uh, Also run a podcast called Bean to Barstool that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. Got into beer in a pretty boring and pedestrian way for a white guy in my 40s. You know, just started drinking IPAs and, and things like that back in the 2000s. So you, you did get into beer kind of later in life like that? Uh, so I turned 21 in 2003, and I would say 2005 or six was when I started drinking craft beer. I really wasn't—I didn't come over from drinking, you know, bricks of Miller Lite or something. Uh, I— for whatever reason, like many people had the opinion that beer was trashy and wine was fancy, and so right. instead of drinking shitty beer, I was drinking shitty wine. Uh, and I had a friend who worked at a liquor store and uh, turned me on to a few different things. I think I had you know some Blue Moon and Sierra Nevada Pale ale. and then uh, there was a camping trip my family took to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We've been going up there since before I was born, even. Uh, And there's one gas station in the town, and my sister and I went in to grab some beer to take to the campground and found Great Lakes Edmund Fitzgerald and Bell's Two-Hearted. And bought both of them because of the labels. Didn't know anything about beer.
0: Wait, you're, you're the only person in the world that bought Bells Too Hard because of the label? <laughs> I love that label.
1: I will defend that label to the death. I know that there are some, yeah. uh, some haters, one prominent one. He's a great guy, but one prominent <laughs> hater. And uh, I will defend that label. I think you have to understand the region and be from around the Great Lakes to love that. But actually... I wrote a big article on Two-Hearted a couple years ago for Pellicle out of the U.K., and the original label artist reached out to me and told me his story, and it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, so I will I will go to my grave defending the Two-Hearted label. Uh,
0: I will put a link to that article if I can uh, remember to do it. Note to self when you're editing this. Put a link in the show notes to that article because, uh, the, I mean, the beer, we don't need to uh, kind of explain how great Two-Hearted is as a beer, but the, there is there is something, like there. Even some of those classic beers, and and uh, Edmund Fitzgerald is probably one of them. I, I don't know what Great Lakes artwork looks like today, but it probably has evolved a lot since uh, that that Edmund Fitzgerald that I remember from you know early days of craft beer. Uh, they they evolve and they change and they get more modern and they get more uh, marketable, I guess. And there is something kind of this this throwback thing about Two Hearted that still uh still feels
1: good to me in some kind of way Yeah, it's It's not (laughs) technically what we have now is not technically the original label they had another label of if i recall it was like a fisherman or something back when the beer was just a periodic release in the 90s and then when it got its full release year-round in 2003 ish somewhere in there uh, is when they went over to that trout label um my guess is that trout label will be around as long as Larry Bell is. It, 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 I, at this point, it kind of has to
0: even beyond that. Like it's become iconic, and like how do you? Uh, I guess I shouldn't say. You know, if we saw you know uh, Boston Lager remastered, I guess anything yeah. can <laughs> can happen in beer. but um, So your your road into craft beer then was it still very kind of um, uh, I don't
1: know a good word for it. Kind of kind of food related. Like was it? Uh, well, uh, not really. Like, I, I didn't get into it through, like, pairing or anything like that. I mean, I didn't drink that much, you know, so this right. was this was just what we had on. You know, there was a six-pack in the fridge for a uh, night that you wanted a beer. But there certainly weren't craft beer geeks yet where we're going out and, and buying everything to, to try it. So for a while, there were just a few different beers that I cycled between when I was going to be drinking. And it, it was probably two thousand. 10 or 11 that I decided to start getting into this more. I liked the idea of being able to learn about a beverage, whatever it was going to be, and beer, conveniently, is the most affordable of those, uh, and had so much ready variety, so you can while you may not be able to tell apart two different hop varieties or parse the difference between a Pilsner and a Helles, you can tell the difference between a Porter and an IPA. So like, you can begin that kind of education pretty quickly, and there's some kind of early rewards to just learning very basic things. Uh, and I think that that kind of got me on that treadmill of wanting to dive in.
0: Yeah, I think I think beer, obviously, like from a uh, from a culture standpoint, it's more approachable. I th- but from a drinking standpoint, I think it's more approachable. From a story standpoint, I think it's more approachable. Like, there's just there's so many aspects about beer that I think make it easy for people to kind of start finding their way into it. Wine is super intimidating for people. There's, uh, I I think
1: so much of that is just cultural, though, because I feel like there are more challenging flavors in some beers for people to turn. I mean, bitterness is an immediate one. So how many people say, I don't like IPAs, and because of that, assume they don't like beer because they don't like that hot bitterness in those old school IPAs. Whereas wine... It's intimidating because of the culture that's come up around it, and people feel like they're not allowed to say anything about it until they are a master and they feel like they're going to get looked down on or made fun of. Beer has that, you know, uh, person on the street type of vibe to it where it doesn't carry with it or in most cases does not carry with it a <laughs> it might start getting there a little right. bit now it, it, <laughs> it certainly has in plenty of circles but doesn't carry with it that automatic intimidation even though some of the flavors i think are more esoteric and and difficult to uh for people to approach
0: i think people it, it feels like you can you can pick up a beer and e- even if you are a new drinker you can still pick it up and be like yes that's good or it's not oh that's uh that's super drinkable, <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. there are, there are things that people feel comfortable being able to talk about, yeah. even if they know nothing about beer versus wine, like people tend to kind of again that that intimidation of just getting kind of sucked into your bow like, I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna say anything it's yeah. it's interesting, um but that's probably a whole different show <laughs> <laughs> uh so. Uh, After you kind of get into craft beer, at what point does it start to take on this other uh, role in your life? And, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm making an assumption, but start to take over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, I started learning more, maybe 2010 or 11. And it was kind of a a steady growth for probably the next four or five years of just you learn more. You think you understand beer. And then it's like, oh, no, okay, there's a whole nother layer. And so you go back through Everything that you understand, and you deepen it just a little bit, and you keep right. doing that over and over. Uh, I was in a job in 2016 that I was. I enjoyed the work. I did not enjoy the work environment, and so I needed to get out of that. And I had already started kind of more intentionally building my beer knowledge, working toward uh, getting my cert- certified sommelier um, exam taken had started doing like some free tastings at our public library just doing like educational talks there and stuff and decided you know what why don't I just like dive in all the way on this I'm already I already was doing writing you know doing uh, literary reviews and all sorts of stuff so I was like why don't I just see if I can make a go of this writing about beer and, and food and drink in general and so I quit my job at the beginning of 2017 and started from the ground up, started building my freelance career from there, and and then just steadily uh, learning and growing from there. Got my certified Cicerone uh, certification shortly after I left my job, and uh, then got my advanced Cicerone, let's see, I passed that in 2021, I think that's right?
0: (laughs) And then uh, from there, you, you know, you've, you've kind of built this uh, this personality around uh, kind of the, the the deeper looks into beer, especially you know I, I, we see a lot of your work here locally about uh, a lot of the Ohio breweries that we all kind of know and love, and um, the the digs that you are doing into the stuff is that that next level of This is. Maybe one of the problems about beer is that it is so approachable, and uh, anybody can um, easily kind of talk about their their relationship with beer, and it it leaves a lot of kind of very um, surface-level written interaction with the beer and the breweries that are around us. And Mm -hmm. you don't see, I think... As in-depth uh, uh, peering into that as you as you might some other beverages, uh, be it you know wine or or even bourbon. Like you, I guess bourbon's kind of hitting that that more approachable <laughs> side now too. But I um, know especially kind of the wine world. I think when you when you see people write about wine, you see a lot more in-depth writing about it. Whereas beer, for so long, you, we're not getting that, yeah. and so seeing people like you that are that are kind of taking that time and there there are plenty of people around the country but uh for us here in ohio there hasn't been a lot of that that we've we've gotten to uh, be exposed to
1: yeah i think one of the challenges with it is that uh while wine has earned the permission to talk about itself in that way pushback has been the snobbery that comes with it and the, uh, you know, the self-aggrandizement and the the, the pinky way in the air um, that now is um, easily mockable and uh, potentially very, very gatekeepy, right. not even potentially actively very gatekeepy in many, uh, many situations. And on the beer side, the challenge that I see is what are the good things within wine culture that beer can aspire to in right. terms of uh, you know deep appreciation for uh, for flavor and ingredients and um, it's right for a place at the table with with food and and things like that while avoiding those pitfalls which we have not entirely avoided because we already have plenty of gatekeeping and, and snobbery but how do we keep the approachability keep the Openness of beer for anybody to be able to come to this, uh, while deepening the appreciation and the respect for the beverage. How do you do that? <laughs> you let me know.
0: <laughs> how, like, how do how do you uh, even even just in, in your day to day stuff where you're where you're writing about beer? How do you how do you take it seriously enough that uh, you you do kind of lean into some of those things that could turn into a kind of a more mm-hmm. snobby kind of uh, side of things. But still, let it, still let it feel uh, more more yeah. approachable, more everyday kind of.
1: Well, I think one of the things that happened on the wine side was that you had people making prescriptive proclamations that really should have been personal, subjective opinions right. uh, or their own experiences. So you have a wine expert reviewing a wine, announcing what everybody should be tasting in this wine and exactly how good it is and you either agree with that or you're wrong and ironically i some of the pushback within beer has been okay we need to get rid of all of that snobby description we shouldn't be talking about this this smells like you know a wet rock or like whatever the the more esoteric descriptions are uh, we just need to be getting back to real basic stuff and I, I feel like ironically the answer is the opposite We need to lean into the subjectivity of experience which means that we really dive into how we as an individual interact with these flavors from a memory and emotion standpoint, how we interact from a memory standpoint with times that we've had beer and who we've had this with and how that, um, amplified the experience. But we need to do that in a way that maintains that this was my experience. What Graham. was yours? And, uh, especially from a flavor standpoint, you know, we've seen a lot of great writing in the last couple of years, I know Mark Dredge did a a really excellent article that just got nominated for a James Beard Award on this about uh, the cultural and geographical influences upon flavor vocabulary. So it's not just that we taste different things when we taste a beer or wine, it's that we have actual different experiences and vocabularies and catalogs of flavors and uh, aromas that we're able to draw on. So when we sit down at a table with people of different experiences from us and different backgrounds, whether that's you know geographical, cultural, racial, even religious or, or socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, the the wrong stance to take would be okay. These are the flavor notes in this beer. Do you get those or not? Right. The correct stance would be this is what I taste here, and really lean into it. Feel free to be very specific. Just don't do that in a way that is. And if you don't get that, you're wrong. You know, right. do that and say as an invitation then. How about you? And if you are both then going to share tasting notes that are very different from each other, maybe even unfamiliar to each other, then you get to talk about, well, where does that come from? How do you know that? Tell me a little bit about your story. Why do you know what such and such fruit tastes like? I don't even know what that is. You know. And that allows for a personal cultural exchange just around experiencing a beer together. And I feel like that posture allows us to both dive in deep... We don't have to just get rid of all that depth of description. We, we can really dive into it, but it allows us to meet on an even playing field with another person who has a different experience. Right. Ma'am, you know, there's, there, to, to me, there's, there's
0: so much about beer that is about, um, about that experience, the experience itself, the experience of drinking it, the experience of, uh, remembering something with it. And I think, I, I I hesitate to say that Big Beer might have been on to something for years of how they were marketing things um, because we know that the, you know, that tastes great less filling wrestling in a, in a fountain is probably not the way they should have been marketing their beer. But, uh, you know, this idea of um, what what that beer was to a lot of people was, you know, sports and tailgating and parties. And, you know, that was that was that was that was what the beer tasted like to those people people and yeah. they, they, they might have been they might have been onto something latching onto that and using that people, instead I mean, of it's a cliche
1: at this point but people should drink what they want you know if you if, if you want to drink a cheap lager I don't care like why should I care you know sit down at the table with me just neither one of us should be giving each other shit for it
0: right yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes I like to give people shit for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, uh, I want to come back to kind of some bigger picture beer stuff in a little bit, but I want to talk about being to soul because sure. uh, uh, talk about kind of the nerdy side of beer. Uh, talking about pairing beer and uh, craft chocolate together mm-hmm. is pretty nerdy.
1: And <laughs> pretty niche. Uh, you, my stats bear that out. Uh, pretty pretty uh, niche audience on that. Uh, yeah, no, I got into craft bean-to-bar chocolate five, six years ago. And
0: Defi- before we define a little bit
1: what that means, you sure. know, bean-to-bar. Yeah. So a uh, little bit of, uh, we needed a little bit of chocolate education before that'll even make sense. So chocolate is made from the seed of a fruit that grows on a tropical tree, th- th- uh, theobroma cacao. Uh, and this tree grows within about 20 degrees north and south of the equator all around the, the globe. In most of those places where it is, now that's inaccurate. In some of the major places that that uh, crop is grown, there are some significant human rights violations taking place uh, with the um, uh, with the labor on the farms, including child labor, child slavery, uh, significantly undercompensated. Employer, I we saw uh, that in
0: the coffee world a lot too. Yeah, it's
1: very similar. It's a very very comparable problem, um, and a huge, really most of the commodity cacao that is going into uh, the you know supermarket chocolate brands is tainted with these human rights abuses, and the companies have been called out on that, and they have. Uh, there was a Supreme Court case about it a couple of years ago. They know about it and they just keep, keep kicking the can farther down the road and saying, yep, we'll get there. We'll, we'll fix this problem and they're never going to. So, sounds, sounds like big business to me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the bean-to-bar chocolate movement sprang up uh, about, I mean, it, it began in the late 90s, but really kicked off about 15 years ago or so um, with makers who had two goals. They wanted to both make sure that everybody along the supply chain was being taken care of, you know, adequately compensated, not abused in any way, uh, which meant that the cacao was a lot more expensive. Uh, And with that, wanted to do similar to what uh, the early craft brewers wanted to do, wanted to provide more flavor and quality and and variety. So the term bean-to-bar refers to the process of making chocolate from the cacao bean all the way through the entire process. What most of the, the candy makers are doing is somebody else is processing that they're getting kind of a, a blended chocolate liquor that they're then using to make their confections from uh, bean to bar chocolate makers are getting the beans traceably transparently they know where it came from they're getting reports that say how much it cost and and uh, you know how much uh, farmers were paid and uh, there are a few different organizations who are vetting those sources to confirm that everything is uh, running as it should on the ground Uh, and then they are taking that and they are doing the work to process that all the way through to a finished chocolate bar the bean to bar chocolate world more broadly we're we're referring to it more as the craft chocolate world now because it is entirely possible to be making ethical and delicious chocolate with chocolate that somebody else made and then you're remelting. So to be a little bit more inclusive there and a little bit more accurate, we usually are calling it craft chocolate now. Uh, But that craft craft chocolate world is as Varied and vibrant and exciting as craft beer is to could, me. It's I,
0: fascinating. I could see that. It's just, it's not as it's not as in your face the way craft beer yeah, has been. It's not as visible. Last... It's a much
1: smaller industry. But I, now, could, but, I yeah.
0: could see that the, the, the culture side of it being kind of that same feeling as craft beer. Uh, what got you into craft jogging? How did you find uh, your way to that?
1: I was way overconfident. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was way overconfident in accepting uh, an invitation to lead a beer and chocolate pairing and uh, figured, well, how hard can that be? Uh, so came down to talk to uh, London Co., who runs a business here in Dayton called Peace on Fifth, uh, which if anyone listening is, is not actually on Fifth anymore. Uh, she sets up at the Second Street Market every week. But she is a craft chocolate evangelist and came down to her just to... Get a few bars and get a little bit of you know recommendations on what I was tasting and right. she is a uh, just enthusiastic uh, teacher and evangelist and uh, you can 't get out of her presence in under like forty five minutes because she 'll just have you tasting different things <laughs> and telling you all about you know what you 're tasting and uh, I quickly realized that first of all, I was in over my head on that first pairing that I did all those years ago but uh, then realize that like wow, this is this is all of the things that I love about beer. You know, it's it's accessible. It's you have both um, the excitement on the agricultural side and the ingredient side, but then you also have creativity of makers who are just putting all sorts of different cool ingredients in their bars, and uh, you have cool packaging and branding. And um, well, it is really similar to
0: craft beer in that anybody can pick up a beer and be like oh this is this is i, I like this or i don't like this mm-hmm. and the same with chocolate you can pick up chocolate but yeah you know, I, I like chocolate but you can also kind of start to scrape away at it and find those Mm -hmm. other layers of either cultural things or flavor things, uh, or like you said, you know, the marketing, the branding kind of stuff that you can get uh, really super geeky
1: about. And yeah, um, I fell down the rabbit hole real hard on that one within, (laughs) as soon as I (laughs) discovered that I, I, within like a year or two, I was going full speed on that. So,
0: so then you do, uh, you do a lot of, like you said, the tastings where you're, you're pairing different Mm -hmm. chocolate with different beers, uh, I've never uh, even thought to, to do that. Like I, the I think the first time I did a uh, beer and cheese pairing, I think kind of blew me away. This idea that there are these other foods out there that you don't necessarily associate with uh, pairing with 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 beer, especially, you know. I think there's still a lot of people that don't think about pairing things with beer at all, let right. alone some of those more kind of uh, those those more typical kind of wine centric uh, uh, foods, you know, like cheese or or chocolate. Um, but I find it super interesting. How did the the podcast come about then?
1: Yeah, there was a few different things behind that. I mean, one, so I, I got the idea to launch this in early 2020, actually before the pandemic started, and. There was, I, there was a
0: what? Yeah, offense. I know, right?
1: <laughs> uh, you might have heard about it in the news. Um, I wanted to do, there's a couple different motivations. Uh, for one, I was just fascinated by this. Nobody was exploring it. I didn't feel like anybody, beyond you know the occasional beer and chocolate pairing that would pop up at a brewery or something, nobody was actually giving attention right. to the overlaps here. And I'm like, is anybody else seeing like all the stuff that these have in common? Um, So I just wanted to explore, but also I recognized the need to develop a platform alongside the freelance stuff I was doing. I didn't really have any kind of anything that I was directing people back to. You know, I was doing all these freelance articles and events, but they were just kind of these one off things and uh, wanted to build something that both had a lot of flexibility in it. You know, I can explore a lot of different things from that basis. Um, but also then was kind of a home base for people to funnel back to, and the, uh, you know, I hate the, the terminology of like needing to build a platform and a brand, but let's be realistic here. So, if as a, a freelancer, I wanted something that people could kind of, um, you know, reference back to as my home, sort of, so I uh, spent a few months kind of building up my ideas for that, figuring out what I wanted to do, getting my branding together, and then launched in the middle of 2020 which was great. People uh, had nothing to do. So uh, got some early success with that. And um, I've, I've really seen a lot of buy-in from the craft chocolate world. It's been, I think, a slower process getting beer people to catch on to what I'm doing.
0: See, I, I would think it would be like chocolate pairing with beer, I feel like would be something really easy for breweries to be able to incorporate into more like day-to-day stuff yeah. i and i mean brace. and
1: i've done you know some talks and things on how breweries can do that just for themselves and i you know actually next week i've got a, a beer and chocolate pairing at branch and bone here in dayton uh which tickets are still available for um but you know what i'm exploring on the podcast isn't just pairing you know i'm doing uh how Makers on both sides work with the same ingredients, Uh, collaborations between chocolate makers and breweries, uh, exploring just flavor, just how we interact with flavor and using beer and chocolate as examples. But it's maybe a little bit more agnostic than needing to be beer and chocolate. And um, so within all of that, just kind of like geeky deep dive stuff, I've noticed a lot more eagerness from chocolate people to just kind of go along for the ride with that. Whereas I think... A lot of, and it could be just because we have more media saturation with craft beer. There's, you know, there's tons of podcasts like the one we're on, um, that beer people maybe see that and think, uh, chocolate. Okay. I'm not, maybe I'm going to set that aside and not right. pay attention. So,
0: I, I mean, I've even started to see, you know, with, with this show, you know, this, uh, like you said, that fatigue of, uh, content creation and podcasters or uh, bloggers or whatever it is coming into places uh, from from the breweries especially is oh, yeah, another one you know yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it didn't used to be that way and, uh, um, i think everybody's exhausted right now in
1: general sure. <laughs> especially with staffing people are like what really
0: yeah, and we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit here in the middle yeah. when we talk about some bigger picture stuff but uh, the the project that i definitely want to talk about that i am super super thrilled about is this uh this final. Gravity. Yes. Uh, talk about it. How did it happen? What is it? Uh, explain it to people.
1: Yeah. So last summer, uh, I wrote and created a self published zine about pairing beer and chocolate The Bean to Bar Stool Guide to Pairing Beer and Chocolate, or something like that. I can't remember the title. Uh, and there was nothing on the market that was a guide what is
0: what is a zine first you have to explain that a little bit
1: right so a zine when i say a zine i think a lot of people hear that and just think i'm uh i'm saying a magazine a zine is a self-published staple bound usually uh home printed publication that can be passed around or sold very very easily and has sprung up i mean its roots go back to subversive literature throughout the ages, uh, but zine culture here in the United States really took off in like the eighties and nineties. Um, you had it's a very well, punk rock thing, as yeah, a lot of, of a lot of music w- was about that. I mean, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have an easy way to share information, and none of the major media outlets or publications were necessarily covering the niche interests was, that people had. It was a blog had. before
0: blogs, <laughs> right? No,
1: it, that's exactly what it was. It was a printed blog, um, so anybody could make one of these. You know, a teenager in their bedroom, you didn't even have to, it could be handwritten and then Xerox. Like it didn't even have to be typed. Um, There was no barrier to entry. It was extremely democratic and egalitarian. And these could just be given out to friends. They could be traded with pen pals uh, in the other side of the country. There were zine shops where these were actually sold. You had zine fests where people could go and either buy a whole bunch of zines from other makers or, you know, offer swaps and trades and all sorts of stuff. It was a really, really cool, uh, way of publishing and, uh, still, still alive and going, even though it is not as, is not filling maybe quite the essential role that it had initially, but there's still a thriving zine culture out there. Uh, and I've, you know, I've had people asking me over the years, like if I'm going to write a book and what are you going to write about? And i certainly have considered it, and especially when I was looking at this pairing zine, there was nothing on the market about pairing beer and chocolate. But then I was thinking like, okay, let's say I can get a book for this. Let's say a a publisher decides that's an interesting enough idea. I am now selling them my entire platform. Like I am now giving them the rights to all of the knowledge I have about this topic. And I'm going to make about a buck. Because nobody makes any money selling books, especially not at the at least not making money at the, the scale that we'd be talking about selling this. Uh, so I'm going to do all of this work, not make any money, and I've just given away my entire platform. So I, uh, of course, there's some, there's some prestige that goes along with getting a book deal. And I was like, you know what? I think I can swallow the pride on that and I can make this thing and I can keep it. And I can sell it for myself however I want and change it as I need to. If I need to update it, I don't need to worry about an entirely new edition needed coming out. I can right. go into the file and I can fix the word or you know change whatever the thing is. So uh, I decided I would I would publish this zine. Um, it's gone really well. It's available on the Bean and Barstool website. I did another one on a different topic uh, this past winter, and then my my wife and I started talking about, wouldn't it be cool if there were a quarterly or, or periodical beer zine that published articles that maybe weren't finding an easy home other places, not because they were poorly conceived stories, but maybe they're, they're very, very niche. Maybe they're very, very personal. Uh, and so they don't have the same kind of wide appeal that, uh, somebody who's dependent on clicks is going <laughs> to need to worry about. Um, wouldn't that be cool? And we can provide, you know, we can, we can provide one more paying market too for beer writers as we're generally seeing markets close for that. Great. Um, and you know, with the very, very low cost of present per, uh, printing a zine and, and creating it, like you don't actually have to sell that much to not be losing money on this. So, um, started building the ideas around it and, uh, decided to call it final gravity and uh, our first issue is going to come out in June. It'll be quarterly after that. Uh, you can pre-order it on Beantobarstool.com or support us on Patreon. You can subscribe uh, if you do it through Patreon. And it, our first issue, I'm finishing up laying it out right now. And the stories we have in there are absolutely fantastic. Just great beer writers writing really personal stories that I feel like we're not we're not seeing in a lot of places. Well, and it's it's not just articles about beer. It's not just people
0: talking about this, right. this, this next beer that's yeah, coming out. we're not out doing it's anything not...
1: newsy or like, uh, you know, trend coverage or that kind of thing. Like, it is much more like in-depth human connections to, like the stuff we've been talking about, human connections to beer. Um, and what's one thing that we're doing with this is it's not just freelance beer writers we are actively uh trying to get people in the industry to write so we've got a couple uh uh, betty ballas from fibonacci uh betsy lay from lady justice brewing out in colorado Uh, we're, we're getting brewers and owners and things writing about beer not just necessarily writing about their brewery but writing about either their experience or uh, their perspective on beer that is not getting told otherwise, because any interview they're doing is about what's going on at their brewery. And, um, we're hoping we don't have this in issue one, but we're hoping to be able to get more people in the industry at all levels, bartenders, uh, you know, seller people, whatever, um, just doing some creative writing just so we can include like some, you know, if there's a, an assistant brewer out there who writes poetry or flash fiction. Well, let's get a couple of the
0: limericks count
1: because I do know a lot of them that write limericks. (laughs) I think that's going to be a hard sell, but, uh, but you know, let's get a couple of those in there and show that people in the industry are not just, you know, it's it's like, you know, kids who see their teachers during the summer and you're like, why aren't you in your coffin you know, for why, the summer? You know, like, aren't you why are you wearing to be, shorts? What yeah, is going on? Yeah, exactly. It's like you know, people in the beer industry do other things. Well, <laughs> and,
0: and, and from a bigger kind of perspective, uh, kind of a nerdy writing perspective, uh, writing has has gotten its butt kicked because of the internet and because of you, you talk about writing for clicks. And uh, it's it's a difficult thing if you're running a website and you're trying to put out content to find that balance between Mm -hmm. you need traffic and you need people clicking on stuff and you want to you want to write things that that actually mean something and feel something and that's that
1: that balance is very hard to hit. And I I don't blame editors you know who have to who who have to consider that when they're looking at a story, they might agree that an idea is a great story, but they know that it's not going to get clicked on, I, and so it's like I don't I don't blame them, but there's got to be somewhere to tell these stories.
0: I think yeah. a lot of a lot of new bloggers too that I, I've noticed people start writing the way they see things being written. And so they start seeing these big publications putting out stuff and like, okay, well this is how I'm supposed, this is what an article is supposed
1: to look like. And it's like, oh man, it's like I, blogs are not passion projects like they used to be. And that was what made them appealing. And, uh, yeah, you, you're, you're spot on about the zines being, uh, blogs before blogs. Like the other, you can look at it the other way. Blogs were taking over from what zines were, which was passion projects that were never going to make you money or, you could not count on that happening. Um, And now you're absolutely right. I mean, somebody starts a blog and it's right away, like five IPAs you need to be drinking right now or something. It's like, I, you you have to know I don't care.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's almost, and I've never actually put it into uh, uh, an organized uh, document or something, but like I, there is like a, 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 like I said, a balance you have to hit. Like I, I find myself now like, okay, like this month I want to write about this and this. So I have to write X amount of uh, news articles also. And I need to write, you know, three of those uh yeah. you know best IPAs you
1: need to be drinking right, right now just yeah, to kind of yeah. get that side of the traffic taken care of and then get this and, and we then do, get this you know <laughs> we do demonize you know listicles and things i remember when i was first getting into beer i liked those cuz i just wanted i just wanted to see what was out there sure. you know it was a low barrier to entry like way I like the conversation
0: kind of, that happens yeah. around it sometimes too yeah. and it starts the argument on the bar you know like yeah. it just see, can't be did, did you see doing?
1: what he said was the best <laughs> right. IPAs <laughs> right no I know before I even put an episode of Bean to Barstool out if it's going to be low traffic or not like I just I know the ones that I'm doing because I think it's interesting and are not going to get anything
0: podcasts are interesting too because the and, and it's it's the same way with I guess blogs and and even a zine it's this you know you, you you build this core audience and that kind of grows over time and keeps growing and then then it starts to not even really matter I mean, it still matters, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what the the, the podcast episode is, or that the, the the article that you put out, like mm-hmm. the, the people that are reading it, are still going to read it or listen to it or whatever it is. Like yeah. Then it then it starts to become its own thing that has this uh, its own little culture around it, and, and I think that's where things get. God fun. bless those faithful listeners. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who downloads this every single week, thank you guys, yeah, <laughs> especially right. those weeks where things don't really always work out the way they're supposed to, <laughs> uh, because Lord knows those exist. Yeah, uh, let's go bigger picture. This is the kind of the conversations that I really enjoy. Uh, uh, craft beer in general is in a really weird spot. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh how do you, how do you personally find that balance as, um, as, as a writer, as a, uh, uh, as an imbiber, as somebody who is just really enjoying craft beer culture when you get this wave of whatever the next thing is, you know, because it's-
1: There's so much right now. Like some of it just temporal, you know, everybody is exhausted from the last three years and brewers don't have enough or brewery owners don't have enough uh, labor and so uh, don't have time for the fun stuff. I mean, there's that. You have the very uh, troubling and ongoing issues with uh, uh, race and, and gender stuff within craft beer of just... Bad players and, uh, bad players actively, um, being bad and general apathy or lack of ability to put energy toward it from, from a huge swath of the industry. I mean, we, we saw that just last, uh, last week with CBC. I mean, how are we still doing this? Like, how is, how is this shit still happening? Um, so you have that, you have, um, you know other challenges that brewers are facing with expenses and things like that that are that are tightening the decisions that they get to make for uh, just for for passion and excitement because right. it's harder to make money at this. You have dropping sales uh, that are kind of putting a pallor over everything because we have brewers closing down and um, others that are struggling to keep the doors open or having to turn to projects that maybe aren't what got them into this right. in order to keep the, the doors open. I, I don't, I, again, I don't say that to demonize any particular beverages that anybody wants to drink, but you know, uh, brewers didn't necessarily get into this cause they wanted to make those and, and maybe have to. And there's just, there's so many different reasons that people are exhausted and that, uh, can spill over for me as a writer, because first of all, the people I'm talking to are not as excited. I can see, The exhaustion. I can see that these folks are no longer loving their jobs. Uh, Huge, huge swaths of craft beer are exhausted from having to tell us over and over what they've been dealing with. Um, You know, women and uh, persons of color and and, uh, LGBTQ plus folks who have been dealing with uh, this shit for forever and. you know the ever the industry is uh, not responding to them as it should. and so, uh, on my side, uh, that both hurts to see that that's happening and also uh, narrows the band of what kind of stories feel worth telling. you know, like i uh, if I'm excited about an ingredient or about a beer, well, how do I celebrate that? Uh, and act like this other thing isn't going on. Right. Or how do I how do I reach out to that brewer who is dealing with that and expect them to just excitedly tell me about their new hop that they're working with when like they're not being treated like a human being in the industry? You know, like it's that kind of stuff is exhausting uh, for me as a writer, and I obviously not anywhere near the level that it is for the folks who are uh, actually dealing with those problems. And so it is. Hard right now. I over the last year, I have felt for myself a lot of difficulty maintaining my excitement, maintaining my energy level, maintaining my optimism that this is going to be a career going forward. Um, uh, what it, what is craft beer going to be like in ten years? Is this how much shrinkage are we going to see? Um, is this going to uh, become a, a, a much smaller and that's probably oversold, but is this gonna is this gonna shrink to the point that now I have to worry about whether or not this is even a thing I can justify covering? And um, although I think some of those reports have probably been overrated a little bit about uh, losses in market, but um, it's exhausting. And I some days I do better than others, but I I've had conversations, with, I I've talked with a uh, malt house owner a few months back who, you know, obviously he's doing something very different than I am, but still is in that position of like, he's not a brewer, he's watching brewers and having conversations with them, And he was saying the same thing. He's just like, man, every time I talk to a brewer to sell them malt, I can just tell that they are holding, barely holding on, you know, they're exhausted. it's like, I really hard to then tell them, well, okay, buy our malt now, or very hard to, get excited with them about this new product that you've got when you can tell they're trying to keep the lights on. And like, it's just, it's, it's exhausting all well, around.
0: It also becomes harder than to, uh, to uh, when you see somebody that then decides that huge part of their, uh, their taproom presence or their sales are going to be a cotton candy flavored seltzer or whatever the next thing is, mm-hmm. because that's what people are just yelling about and what people are claiming. It's like you get tired of fighting, that fight when you have these other things that are happening too or you know the the list of things that you're dealing with as a as a business right now as a craft brewer uh is so long that it's like how do you how do you keep how do you keep going down this road and fighting this battle when uh in the grand scheme of things
1: it's so far down on your list yeah. as a as a person and that's the thing like you have these much bigger, very, very legitimate issues that are sitting over everybody. Economics, uh, all of this, all of the the industry's failures with DEI stuff. It's like anything else is immediately less important than that, which should be. But those things that are less important are also probably the fun little things that got you right. excited about this. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, I don't know what we're going to be looking at in a couple of years of what the industry is going to look like
0: uh i mean on 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 one side of things i think the the consumer as far as beverages or taste or uh being interested in better products is is higher than it's ever been uh, i think people are uh are primed to uh, experience craft beer or craft food or or anything in a in a better way than they've ever been mm-hmm. but it's it's also happening at the same time that all these other big big issues are kind of coming to a head and uh, uh, does one tear the other apart and
1: well also with that, you know just keeping this purely to the products themselves and setting aside that bigger picture stuff for a minute uh, that excitement across food and drink segments in some ways while it was one of the goals of these early craft beverage or craft food industries has also circled back around and kind of hurt the individual segments where that interest is somewhat segment agnostic now. So especially we're seeing that with Gen Z where we're being told repeatedly that they are not loyal to, to beer, to wine, to anything. They are drinking a different thing anytime they're drinking, which makes sense when you have achieved the success of getting all of these industries to actually be doing cool stuff. And well, no kidding, they're trying all these different things. That's and that's cool. Well, but
0: that's, for for years that's what craft beers were telling people to do.
1: Like mm-hmm. just try new things. Try something that you haven't tried before. Well and I think the very <laughs> one of the one of the very things that makes craft beer so appealing, the variety. The fact that there's so many different classic styles and then beyond classic styles, you've got so many uh, things you can do with with different you know, adjunct ingredients and uh, hybrids between that. The very thing that made that exciting is also what uh, made it impossible for people to understand. Right. Like you can do beer education all day. 95% of people are never going to care enough to actually understand what those different styles are and create any sort of like systematic understanding they just want to like. They just want to enjoy what they're drinking. They yeah. just want to maybe try something new. But so that very excitement that made a very small subset of us decide, you know, we're we're all in. We're gonna learn everything there is about this. Also turned and kind of it was a barrier for a lot of people getting in because they look at. they look at all of craft beer and see okay there is way more here than i'm going to be able to understand so i'm just going to kind of sit back and i'm not going to bother where uh maybe with another beverage they might have a little better luck at least getting a lay of the land
0: right uh that's kind of kind of depressing to think about (laughs)
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, this is,
0: uh, <laughs> this has been depressing me for the last year or two. What, uh, what gets you excited about, uh, craft beer in the craft industry right now?
1: <laughs> I get excited when I see new stories from, uh, people who probably would not have had access to the industry, uh, five, 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, uh, persons of color and women and and, and different things that uh, were more aberrant success stories earlier on in the industry and noteworthy just because they existed. Now it's like, okay, we're actually seeing some people get to like put themselves and their culture into what they're doing in Mm -hmm. really, really cool ways. So I get excited about that. I, you know, I still get excited about ingredients when people are working with cool stuff. I mean, that's, that's kind of the the part of the basis of being to Barstool was like brewers who are actually working with ethically sourced cacao and doing really cool things with it. I still get, you know, geeked out about, Oh wow, you're doing what process, you know, you're doing, you're using an ingredient. How like that's, that's really, really cool. Um, and I think seeing, and this is something that I have to do more as a spectator, but seeing the excitement for beer popping up in places around the world that you would not historically think of as beer cultures has been really cool. And something that I I think for those of us who, if, if we do end up um, maybe disillusioned a little bit with craft beer here in the U.S., depending on what happens with the market in coming years, might be where we go to get those recharges. You know, places like Uh, Vietnam and uh, South Africa and like places Brazil my goodness Brazil has an amazing craft beer scene right now like uh, places that somewhat followed along with um, the U.S.'s craft beer scene but have uh, are incorporating ingredients from uh, their own culinary traditions and things like that I think it's just so so cool I was talking with actually the the episode of my podcast that's going up today is with a chocolate maker in Hong Kong who is uh, working with a brewery there to uh, make a chocolate bar with with beer ingredients but like there's craft beer everywhere and I feel like because it's younger and newer in some of those places it still has that vibrance and that that newness and excitement around it uh, which I think is really cool.
0: And maybe they can learn from some of the mistakes that we made. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and maybe do it a little different. But uh, if people want to know more about you, about any of the projects we've talked about, what's the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you can learn more about me specifically and see what events and freelance writing I'm doing at davidnilsonbeer.com. I'm also David Nilson Beer on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Beantobarstool.com is where you can find the podcast and the Beantobarstool blog, as well as the shop where you can order all the zines that we just talked about. Uh, The Final Gravity zine that I mentioned that is forthcoming, you can pre-order on Beantobarstool.com or... Uh, from the Bean to Barstool website you can get to our Patreon to subscribe or support us there and you can follow Bean to Barstool on all of those same social platforms as well
0: I appreciate you making time for me yeah uh, thanks for inviting me I'm on. working on some really really cool stuff uh, a very different a different side of things than I think uh we often deal with on on my side of things with with this show or with any of the stuff that I do so I I appreciate it a lot and I uh, so excited to see all of this uh all of this have especially man the, that final gravity is gonna be so much fun <laughs> yeah
1: i'm so excited about it uh-huh. and uh i'm i'm so excited about the stories we already have in there we're lining up the stories for issue two already and it's it's gonna be awesome so definitely check it out
0: uh get on there support it guys uh, uh and speaking of support if you want to support this show uh you can go to the gnarly slash support and you can uh you can find our patreon page there or just share with your friends that's really kind of the way all of this stuff keeps growing just uh tell somebody that you think would like this about it and uh it'll keep growing and we'll be back next week uh we have another kind of dayton ish show next week i promise it's not dayton brewcast it's just just mm-hmm. pure luck scentsy <laughs> brewcast it's the voice of scentsy craft